lyrical, thrill, and inspiring your trumpet journey, here's your host, James Newcomb. What up, everybody? I'm about to get on to the call with Ken Larson of Ken Larson's Brass Works. It took us quite a while to get the stars to align so that both of our schedules could line up to get a Zoom call, but here we are. I'm just about to get onto the Zoom call now. What can we say about Ken Larson? He has been there and done that, to say the least. He has performed in just about every orchestra, opera, ballet in the Los Angeles area that you can think of, including the San Diego Symphony, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, the opera there in Los Angeles. And now he teaches at the Interlochen Academy, trumpet. And of course, he has his famous company, Ken Larson's Brassworks, spelled with an E. I just wanted to take a minute to let you know what you're about to hear. I haven't even started the call, so I don't know what exactly is going to happen, but I'm excited and let's get to it. Before we got on the call, I just recorded a little intro for people who are going to be listening in. And so we can just dive into whatever. And I guess where I want to start is back in the day, I used to be trying out for symphony orchestras. And that you and I met in Indianapolis at the concert hall there. And I did my thing. I didn't advance. And but you were there and you and I talked. It wasn't longer than five minutes. But you were yeah. there, think, and you just have to refresh my memory, but you were there just to try out horns in a nice concert hall. Is that correct? Then I could teach the kids how to do it. So you, so it's a multifaceted purpose. You want to try out your instruments and just stay fresh, stay in the game, absolutely. so to speak? Okay. Ab- absolutely. No, it's because I teach at this kind of weird, It's I guess it's not a weird boarding school, but it's unique. I really like to try and make sure that I'm in as good a shape as I can be in. I can't remember how many years ago I was probably still flying out to LA to work up in Santa Barbara at that point. In the last five years, that has gone away as well. But I remember I, I made the I made the deposit and it was too late to get my deposit back. And I really kind of wanted to stay at home and sleep. But <laughs> <laughs> your deposit for the audition? Exactly. Okay. All right. So you're invested and you had to do it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I had worked up the tunes. It was interesting because I saw some people that I didn't, I, w- I won't name their names because they have jobs. <laughs> I didn't expect to be there, actually. And actually, even the hall really surprised me in terms of, I don't know if you remember, it seemed really small, even smaller than I expected and really live which is also I didn't quite expect that. I don't know what I was thinking was going to happen, but I remember I my biggest pet peeve or not pet peeve but like my Achilles heel when it came to playing was always nerves. I used to get just unbelievably nervous in any playing at a campfire for the kids as when I was the camp counselor, I'd get up my trumpet and I'd be just terrified. I, I don't it was just something that I had to overcome and that particular audition wasn't prepared. I wasn't in a, I didn't have my chops ready, either physically or mentally. I, I just didn't have it looking back. But I do remember going in there and just not feeling at all nervous, completely comfortable in my own skin. And it was wonderful. 
Turning point. Yeah, I still get nervous. And that's something that I try and teach the kids that you can't affect what people are thinking. So why care? Yeah, that. But how do you know when is it a good nervous versus a, a type of nervous that's affecting your performance deleteriously? Debilitating. Yeah, boy, oh boy, oh boy. I think that it can go that way because as far as I'm concerned, it's 92% mental. 92? 92%. I stole that, I think, from Vince Penzarella. I think he had that on his door, maybe 90%. But if uh, it's all in how I view the situation. And I think if I recall what freaked me out about that one, was the order of the tunes and it seemed like there was some high piccolo playing followed by an extremely low tune at the end and that freaked me out because i knew nothing was going to come out on my end my my low playing at that point even though i was in los angeles playing the opera and the master chorale and a lot of those things i was playing third trumpet but since i moved back here all i ever play is first trumpet or lead trumpet in the big band so it's it's gone the other direction and i'm just lazy i don't like to work that hard a lot more work for me yeah i didn't answer your question as far as i think you decide i think that this is a conscious decision you can decide that this is gonna mess me up. Like I remember in in high school, I still don't hate me people, but I still chew gum when I, I always get a bunch of people after me. How can you do that? I my my big fear was my mouth would get dry and then I couldn't play. And I can remember playing in school and realizing at one point it really I can play when the mouth is dry. It's just not very comfortable. But gum really makes my life better. Gum. Really? Gum, I'm telling you, Mentos gum. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I probably chewed about 10, <laughs> 10 pieces at this big band Christmas we did this afternoon. I would be worried about it getting stuck in my mouthpiece. Yeah, people always say that, but the way I hold my corners or whatnot, there's a little, little spot down here. I'm pointing to the right side of my cheek and gum. I can hold it there for some unknown reason. I was going to say, let you are talking about you have that set list for the audition. And I just thought, let the young kids worry about working that hard. You didn't, you weren't there to win, right? You had your own agenda, and that's fine. You made a trip, and you had every right to be there for whatever purposes you want. And the per probably the person that was meant to win won the job. But you went away, and you, ha got, you, you had what you came for. I got to test some horns and some designs that I probably wouldn't have. And I don't know if they've been put into production, but I'm sure it's helped someone somewhere. And it's always the, when I go to a gig up here, I'll always have three or four instruments out. Whether or not I play them all, I want to see what it does. I've been working on a commercial instrument that's patterned after the Z-horn and People can figure that one out. Pretty small venturi, but on a medium-large body. And what I came away from this weekend playing with this band was it plays really easy, but I, I can't live with the sound. There, there's a whole bunch of questions that are come to me as you talk that I want to cover. But I always like to ask every person that I have on the show about your own personal history. How did you get started on trumpet in the first place? And when did you take it seriously, make it a profession and whatnot? Oh boy, I probably took it seriously 
from the Thursday that I had my first private lesson when I was probably eight years old. I sang in the church choir, sang in the youth group choir. Music was always very appealing to me. It made me feel better. And I wanted to play guitar. And so my parents bought me an accordion, figuring the old Norwegian man next door could teach me how to play. But Axel Smith was much more interested in drinking beer in his shed than teaching some little kid how to play accordion. And I have no coordination. Anyhow, I got a church. I got a bugle at a church rummage sale. My friend Bobby Radcliffe was in the Boy Scouts, taught me, Boy Scouts taught me how to play bugle. At that point, let's see, when I got old enough, like I said, probably eight years old, nine years old, something like that, there was the Optimus Youth Band in San Diego. My mom signed me up for that, got a rent tone trumpet, and she told me this, if you memorize your fingerings before your first lesson, then we'll buy the trumpet for you, which was on a Thursday. So I got up early Thursday morning and memorized my fingerings. I was real lucky. I had private lessons from the very first time. I had the instrument in my hand, although I didn't believe what he was telling me. (laughs) He said, yeah, you got to hear what it sounds like, little Kenny Larson. And I just got this thing on Monday. I don't know how I'm supposed to know what it's supposed to sound like, but I use that one to this day. I always practiced half again as what was required of the rest of the kids. And summers, I practiced about two, three hours a day. My mom, what she knew about music was that Jerry Lee Lewis did this. He ate, (laughs) slept, and practiced. My mom couldn't carry a tune if you put it in a five-gallon bucket and sealed it shut. I knew I wanted to have something to do with music, but I thought I'd play in a band of some sort. But apparently that's not what my sound was like. And I still, I like, I'm still playing in big bands and that, that sort of thing, but that's not what I do. What the turning point was, I worked at a company called Jackman Wheels full-time my last year in high school working nights, and I quickly realized that I did not want to work for a living for the rest of my life. (laughs) So the minute I started at San Diego State in 77, I knew I was going to do something with it. I moved to Los Angeles two years after, and the rest is a mystery. The rest is a mystery. Working for a living, meaning like working real job. This, yeah, real job. I, was, I did powder coat painting, and then they moved me over to this giant shot painting machine that had about an 800-pound, half-inch thick door that you opened every minute and a half and put these 40-pound steel wheels on it. And yeah, it was like almost like working in the fields. I did that for, oh, I think about nine months and always a real hard worker. And at the point that I went, started school, they said, oh, we never let anybody do this, but we'll let you work part time if you'd like. And I go, no, thank you. And at that point, I started practicing. I figured if three hours was good before I had seven books, I could spend an hour in each of these books. Don't do this at home, kids. Dumbest thing I've ever done. Maybe not, but I practice about seven hours a day at school. Something that a young person would do is practice seven hours a day. Yep, and and it totally undirected. I just had these books and I worked out of each of them for an hour. All right. We can say that it worked out in the end, but it seems to me like that would have caused some issues that may not have manifested immediately, but maybe years down the road, probably perhaps, and maybe you can, I see you 
nodding your head in affirmation here, but tell us how that worked out. I've learned how to play wrong multiple ways very well. Okay. How's that? In terms of when I moved to LA in 79, I went to CalArts. I studied with Mario Borneri and Roy Popper would help me out. But I, it was a real weird thing. I got my wisdom teeth pulled, my embouchure slipped, and I had a big beard and you couldn't really see it, but it just didn't quite sound right. So I probably spent the next 10 years trying to fix my face until I, I discovered the, what is the Caruso, the six magic notes, and that fixed it magically. Really? <laughs> All by itself. Yeah, it was, I had I started teaching a bunch of kids. I had no interest in teaching as a young man. I just wanted to play gigs, and that's primarily what I did in and how I made my meager living. But but it's at one point I was given like 20 students at this high school. And basically all the kids needed to do was to learn and memorize all their scales. So I did these magic notes at the beginning of their lesson, played scales with them for half hour, 45 minutes. And then I did the magic notes at the end with them. And I did this, I think I was there two, three days a week. And it just, it moved where it needed to move. And I've lived relatively happily ever after. What are the magic notes? Basically, poo two two G through C, G in the staff. It's a half note, whole note with a breath attack to start with. You keep it on your face. You do an exhale for two beats after you get done playing the whole note. Inhale through your nose. And this is verboten in many places. But Vince Penzarella made it okay for me. Thank you, Vince. Which, by the way, I've never sat in the same room with him. I did a couple of phone lessons with him. But he totally changed my approach to playing the trumpet. All right. Was he your, would you consider him your primary mentor? On it was, I was, it was late in life. I was in my mid thirties. Now Mario was probably my main mentor and he was, he is, he's eight, just turned 80. Wow. And he was great musician, great sound. All he was interested in was you making a great sound and being able to spin a phrase turn a phrase. He was, it was a very interesting way he taught. He would basically, I'd come in, I'd play something, usually the Rochu, the Bordogne things. Uh, I'd get through about a phrase and a half and he'd grunt and moan at me. He'd say, that's eh, not it. Rub his face, demonstrate something. He'd say, yeah, it's like this. You want to go get coffee? And that was how my lessons went <laughs> because I was low man on the totem pole when I first got to CalArts. So. You may have missed this, but what is Mario's last name? Guarneri. Guarneri. I think you said that and I just missed it. Nah, I probably left that out. I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to give you the benefit of the doubt for the benefit of I our listeners. That. No, I leave a lot of stuff out when I'm talking. I don't want people to think less of you. You understand that. I'm trying to... Oh, it's all good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I met a guy at this job today, and I introduced myself, and was working on one of the guy's trumpets in the section. He finally figured out, you're Ken Larson? I go, yeah, sorry to disappoint you. That's interesting because I haven't, aside from our brief meeting in Indianapolis, I don't know that I had heard of you before then, but then you're just on social media and Trumpet Herald, wherever it is. You just see Ken Larson Brassworks or somebody's selling something and it says it was modified by Ken Larson. And so you just hear this name, just has this sort of notoriety, but you don't really know the actual person. So it's interesting to... 
be talking to the Ken Larson that I've seen with all of this social proof throughout the years. Everybody is, is modified by Ken Larson. And now here we are talking to Ken Larson. It's pretty cool. I think it's hysterical. My wife, every once in a while, will go, if I'm getting a bunch of crap from someone, do they know who you are? I said, I don't even know who I am. <laughs> there's no no ego involved. I started building stuff. Or actually, I went to work for Bob Malone after I'd had a head-on collision. Didn't think I was going to ever play the trumpet again. I'd gone back to work on my doctorate at USC quickly realized that getting a doctorate probably wasn't in my future because you had to be able to type. And <laughs> I was having a terrible time writing papers. And at any rate, I started figuring out how to play again. And I started getting studio calls that, that the good work came back. Wow. So that's the story right there. Tell us about, as much as you're comfortable, tell us about the, the accident and the recovery and the road back to playing. I was coming back from Moore Park on the back roads to Fillmore where I used to live. And I played this Disney extravaganza with the Moore Park Symphony, I think. And it, at any rate, was driving on a two lane road, kid over the double yellow line, 70 miles an hour, thought he was going to make it around this other car, plowed right into me. Luckily, it was a Highway Patrol Mustang with a V8 in front. I was okay, but there's a lot of soft tissue damage in my back. The three vertebrae where your, ah, where your what, Ken? Where your diaphragm attaches was severely injured. But the good news is that my friend Roy Popert said, hey, you got to go see this chiropractor by the name of Jerry Hyman. Jerry played lead trombone for Blood, Sweat, and Tears back in the day. And so he was able to put me back together over a couple of years. Lots of duct tape, lots of physical therapy, lots of getting a lot smarter about how I was playing. I was at SC. I was working with Roy Popper, who knows he studied with Stamp when he was in high school. And I was fortunate enough to be, well, I still am good friends with Malcolm McNabb and he helped me as well just trying to get smart about playing and vicariously although i never sat in the room with jimmy stamp either jimmy stamp put me back together i've heard many people say that injuries and nothing is not necessarily as severe as what you're just describing but people lose teeth have get injuries injuries they get implants whatever and it forces a wiser a more efficient approach to playing Absolutely. Yeah. It was it's very interesting. It's still it's still going on because those sorts of injuries never go away. It's just you have to continue to do all the work and you have to keep doing the physical therapy. You still feel the pain today. And it's not like boohoo, everybody's got something. You know, that when I come right down to it, everybody's got their cross to bear, so to speak. With it, I think. Maybe not you though. I've got everything put together. Everything's perfect for me. That's one of us. Yeah, I'm looking at your chops. What do you see? I'm seeing see, my top lip rolls out more than I want to. What do you mean rolls out? What does that mean? It's the knob in the center where the Cupid's bow. I don't tuck that because I was afraid the mouthpiece was going to slip and I was going to grab hold of the mouthpiece. But just actually this weekend, realizing some of the notes I was having to play, it would be better if 
actually rolled that in a little bit. That was one of the things that helped me with my chops. I'm looking around in the studios and there you see Rick Baptist, Malcolm McNabb, these other guys. And I'm going, man, I don't see any of the red on their lips showing when they play. Yet mine are all pooched out. <laughs> Maybe there's something there. I learn a lot through observation. Not real smart, but I see things. You've had teachers and mentors, but you strike me as the pers- type of person who has learned more on your own through trial and error than with teachers, unless I'm misunderstanding. The, my teachers all showed me the way, but I think that's what makes me pretty good at the job that I do now. I remember what it was like to be an adolescent and be pretty being pretty pleased with my intellect and going, man, that just seems wrong, like a lot of work. I bet you I can figure a better way, and I'm just here to tell you, kids, listen to your teachers. You don't need to learn it on your own. They're all different, too. When I'm teaching, I look at it like this. We all have all these ingredients available to us. It's like becoming a great cook or a great chef. It's up to you to go into the practice room and, and put it together somehow. But then I'm not a kind of a routine guy, although I am. I do stamp every morning, so I guess I am a routine guy. We got a bit off track, but I want to get back <laughs> to how you got into modifying and tweaking and oh, yeah. torquing instruments. It sounds to me like it, the accident played a role in that. Take us down that road. It was a little bit before that in school. When I was at CalArts, I I was playing lead in a big band, although I wasn't supposed to be playing lead in a big band down at CSUN, down at Cal State Northridge. I was supposed to be on the jazz chair, and the lead player got a gig on a cruise ship, so of course he left. I think he's in Branson now. Thanks, George. Anyhow, and I had this Bach 43, and I knew for some reason that some trumpets didn't have that secondary upright brace behind the main tuning slide. So I got a torch and I took mine out and right away realized I could not tongue or play in a quintet, but I could play high Fs and Gs and As and stuff with that brace missing. So I went to the local hardware store. I bought an 832 die and a brass nut and I threaded it and I made the, I don't know if it was the first, my first adjustable brace in about 19, probably 79, 80. So I was always really interested in the gearhead part of it. And so my talent, if there is such a thing, comes from the dad's side of my family. They were all machinists and boat racers and transmission mechanics and machinists and you get the idea. So that's kind of in the blood. Anyhow, long story, really long and more boring. I knew Bob Malone. We played a few church gigs together when I played in San Diego Symphony. The whole section came up and we all got MC2s because that's what Tom Stevens was playing. And we all want to be Tom Stevens. So we all got those. And I knew Bob a little bit because we'd work together other than me just giving him money. After I had this accident and I was in the throes of a divorce, I went to Bob and I said, man, I got a lot of time on my hands. If you need somebody to sweep your floor or polish instruments or whatever, I call me up. And he said, ah, I really, blah, 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 don't have that, the wherewithal to do that. And about two weeks later, I got a call from him. He says, 
you think you could plumb my new shop for air? And I said, of course I can. I had no idea what I was doing, but I figured that out and I plumbed a shop for air and I got done with that. He said, you want to stay on and figure, learn how to pull lead pipes. So I did. I stayed there for about seven years. Last two years I was in the shop, I started bringing in my own clientele and had a I had an agreement with Bob that the those people I could work after hours for a, on a percentage basis. And when my son was about to be born, I asked Bob for a raise, and we won't talk about the exact amount. It was very little. He gave me what he could, but it wasn't enough. So I left and started my own shop, basically. And this is what, 97 time frame? 97. 97. Yep. Okay, I have to ask, what does it mean to plumb a shop for air? What does that mean? In other words, you have a giant air compressor somewhere in the shop. Yeah. Now you need air to run your torches. You need your air when you're cleaning stuff out in the cleaning room. And so basically it's just like plumbing a house for water, but instead of water running through the pipes, your air is going through the pipes. You're cleaning out the air pipes? No, you're putting them in. He had moved into a new shop, so he needed a he needed a whole new setup. He had this wonderful, gigantic 120 gallon air compressor, <laughs> but it was only in one corner of the shop, and it was a big shop in Van Nuys. Okay, so you're taking you're taking the air from the compressor into these pipes that are feeding the various tools, okay. yeah, just like yeah. if you were putting water in a new house. That's fascinating. Now, I just spoke with uh, Scott Moore of the Memphis Symphony just a couple of weeks ago. His episode is already up. He was talking about when he was in school in Boston at the New England Conservatory, he got a gig as an usher at the Boston Symphony Hall there in Boston. That was like his on-the-job training in a way. He was getting his classroom education and just getting his butt kicked at lessons and whatever it was. But there he is. He's just said, I just want to be in this environment. And look at him now. He's principal trumpet in a great symphony. It's that mindset of you have to be willing to do the small stuff. And if you can do yeah. that, then you can be trusted with bigger things. While you're doing that, you're also learning the actual job. So you weren't doing anything explicitly related to trumpet and getting better at playing scales or whatever. But you're learning the craft just being in that environment. Oh, absolutely. And you get, I got to test instruments from Oh, Greg Adams of Tower of Power, Michael Sachs's trumpet would come in, Stevens stuff would come in, and I got to play all that stuff. And what's really interesting, at least to me, is that an instrument will break into your sound. And Greg Adams, man, that sound that he had in Tower of Power, I'm going, yeah, that's exactly, that's all I need is a bel canto. I bought one years later out of John Adino's estate, but it didn't have the Greg Adams sound. But yeah, you get, and I got to play for people because they wanted to hear what their instruments sound like. So I got to meet a lot of people. What does it mean? And I, because I, the reason I'm bringing this up, you just said this, and I was just thinking about something the other day, because everybody is just, I have to get this horn so that I can make this sound. But you said something along the lines of the horn will break into your sound. What did you mean by that? At a molecular level, an atomic level, if you will, the metal is going to not create, but respond sympathetically to the energy you're putting in. It proved itself time and again, you would get a great trumpet player's horn in your hand and you could hear that sound with you playing it. 
Now, that same model instrument that somebody else had played wasn't isn't going to have that same breaking in. Okay, so you're saying that the actual energy of the player it it sounds a little bit woo woo, but you're saying that the actual energy of the player is manifested in the sound of the instrument while you're playing it. In the metal, yeah, and it's like I've got no scientific proof; it's all empirical. But I have I've witnessed it many times, and so here's as time has gone on. I used to sell my personal instrument quite a few times when I was still using BNS parts when I could still get them. And about every month or two, one of my students or I'd be at a show or somebody and they go and they play my horn. Now there was one just like it on the table, but they didn't want that one. They wanted mine. I'm not thumping my chest saying I got this great sound, but there's was there's something to it. And it's a real it's a real all this stuff is as much science as there is black magic in it. We could go down the water key cork. You know, that, that's one of my favorite things. Water key what? Water key cork. One of the jobs that I had when I worked for Malone was one day he gave me a research assignment. And he said, I want you to determine the optimal point for the water key spigot on our tuning slides. So I built a slide and he said, yeah, put it all the way up on top. I want to see what that does. Then patch it. And then move it down hundred thousands. We'll try that. And so we went all the way around this and then finally determined where we were going to put it. Then we had to decide what size hole it was. And th again, this sounds like black magic, but there is some just some very strange things about how the metal vibrates even if the air isn't going through it on the third valve slide. This that this is a three-hour conversation right here. I would love to have it sometime. It sounds wacky on the surface, but I've been, I've been alive long enough to know that there is definitely a lot of merit to what you're saying. And we, like you said, you can't prove it, but you just know. This is what I do at clinics, and I do this all the time. I'll say, okay, anybody have a rubber water key stopper on your instrument? You get your horn clean, you got a neoprene on there. Great. Come up, play it. Yeah, they'll play it. I said, okay. I'll pull the rubber neoprene out and put a natural cork water key cork in there. And they play it, and their eyes get huge and go, what did you do? I just change your water key cork all of a sudden and everyone in that room can hear the difference in the sound and i don't tell them what i did or what happened or anything same thing with mahas now has a big screw so you can adjust the tension on the the water key lever if you tighten that up the horn tends to get more centered and tight i'll say and as you loosen it up the sound starts opening up how could a rubber stop in the water key versus a cork, how could that affect a person's sound? This is the part where you got to hear it to believe it, number one. Number two, after you've heard it and you believe it, then you can ask the question, how? And at that point, it's you're looking at the instrument vibrating as a whole. Could also be a placebo effect where you're saying, Ken Larson just tweaked my horn and then all of a sudden, and it has... In, inside of your head, you're thinking, I'm, I had a great master technician work on my horn, 
and now I sound better. Is that possible? I'd agree with you if I hadn't done it behind their back by just looking. I say, just let me take a look at this. Yeah, it's there is, yeah, the 92% mental. I know in my own playing, I cheaped out. I bought some, some composite corks for my own horn and I put it in. Sounds not there. I know. And the uh, the only other story that I have, not as many stories I have, but we did some heat treating on my Shilky, on my Piccolo many years ago. Bob fixed it by adjusting the water key. Don't ask me. But I know it to this day, there is a shim that is super glued onto, it's basically a nipple extension on the third valve where no air goes through when you're playing it. And it's either a good trumpet or a bad trumpet. That thing fell out, you would know it immediately. It's crazy. It is. But your big point with this is that the actual energy of the person playing it translates into a specific sound. And one person playing the same horn will get a completely different sound out of it. I think maybe I'm butchering what you just said. I think we went off on a tangent. The original premise was basically, I had the same experience with Malcolm McNabb's trumpet. When I used to hang out up at his house, I worked on doing <clears throat> carpentry work on restoring one of his houses. And I got locked into his house one day. And of course he had an alarm system on it. And I was done doing the trim around the floor. And so I, I'm going, well, what am I going to do? Sat down at the piano, picked up his trumpet with his mouthpiece on it. It's like that sound was in there well before I ever worked at Malone. It's, it's you, yeah, you got to experience it to, to believe it, but I've seen it time and time again. Yeah, maybe it's one of those things that you can't explain it on a academic level. You have to understand it on a spiritual level, and that can only come through really experiencing it. I think that if you played one of these instruments, you just go, you would think that this is just a really great instrument. And maybe it was. I'm trying to think of the, the my, my best story with that was when Bach made, can I say Bach on this show? Anyhow, made some trumpets for Malcolm way back when. And I remember when he first got them, I played them and went, you're going to play these things? I didn't say it. <laughs> but that's exactly what I thought. A year later, I came back to visit him, played the same instruments, and it was remarkable. And it broken into all of a sudden, and there was no difference with the instrument other than it was a year older. It's not like the metal is alive. No, I'm not saying that at all. I get that. I get that. I'm, and I was saying that as a fact. The metal is not alive, but the molecules, that, as you said, is it that they conform to the energy of the person or just don't understand how to explain Plus, this? We could, we could go another route. This will even make it more confusing. Perfect. When you kneel a bell, it's I can't explain why when I heat brass to a certain temperature and I quench it in water, it makes the metal soft. But it is real. It does that. Heat is energy. Sound is energy. Wouldn't it follow through that they would still have an effect, maybe to a lesser extent and over a longer period of time, that the heat would make it? It's very strange. I know that during COVID, when I wasn't getting out to shows, my business suffered. I think that a lot of that was not getting instruments into people's hands for them to experience that 
And of course, the economic, <laughs> I'm going to spend three grand on a trumpet that I may or may not ever get to play in public. The shows and playing playing the instruments, it's it makes sense in my head, but it's not coming out, so it's making sense. We went off on at least eight rabbit trails, I counted. At least Oh eight. yeah, there's a bunch of holes. I think tangentially, there's nothing linear about my brain cell. That's all good. And I think that people listening, the three that are still here with us, they can they can come to their own conclusions and they can interpret what we're saying in their own ways. We do have brains and we are somewhat intelligent on a certain level. So I trust our listeners to come to whatever conclusions you want. And still, we thank you for patronizing our little conversation here. I want to shift slightly. We're still on the same topic. First of all, can you tell us what exactly, how, do you, how would you define yourself when it comes to building trumpets? I built trumpets because I couldn't buy a trumpet that I wanted. <laughs> so that's of where it's at. Because I don't spin bells, I'm limited to, I get my bells from Germany primarily, probably 98% of them. They're spun to my specifications. I have a mandrel at the Meinl shop that I designed. It's based on a 229. Yeah, here we go on a tangent. I do make lead pipes. I design lead pipes, mouthpieces. I've dabbled in. Mark Reese made me do that. He said, if I'm going to play your trumpet, you got to make mouthpieces. So I've designed that, and, they, and Mark Curry's been making them for us faithfully for years. So how do I define myself? I play trumpet. I teach trumpet. I make trumpets. I'm a tailor. That's how I am as a trumpet builder. And I'm getting really back to my roots in terms of how this all began. I've been selling off a lot of demo stock because I really basically want to work with players and make the instruments work for them. It's not, it's, you know, I, that, that'll sound like I'm getting on people's case. I think that it's really important that you get what you need, not what I think you need. And you're the boss. Now, if somebody asks me what I think, I'll tell them if they want to trust my ears. But I basically, I'm trying to tailor something to fit you within the confines of what I have to work with, which is a lot. All right. So I want to, and I'm just going to spitball some questions here. So sure. do, just do your best. How do you know, or what is the process of getting the person to understand what they want? They might come to you and have what they think they want, but maybe you look at them and you hear them play and you say, there comes a time where you have to say, this isn't what you need. I know that this is what you think you want. How do you deal with situations like that? I have given people exercises and not sold them anything. That's if it's at a really, it's at a production level. I was involved with Gary Radke for a short amount of time and dealt with some of his clients. But anyhow, it's another story. This is what my process works like this. You come to me, I trot out, okay, you want a, you want a B flat trumpet. I trot out half dozen B flat trumpets with different bells on them. And I say to you, I want you to play all of these and I want you to just play the open notes. I'm not interested in how this feels, but which of these are closest to the sound that you hear in your head? If I can get someone to do that, then we got something to work with. If they are if they get distracted like trumpet players like to get <laughs> then it's very difficult. But if I can get them to do that, chances are we're on a good, on a very good start. 
because then we can deal with resistance and feel and nobody ever wants a trumpet that they go oh i need this to play tighter which indeed most of the time that is the case i try and find out where they want the resistance but everybody is going to say no i don't want any resistance at all think of one player tyler down in in nashville and he truly doesn't want any resistance i've got a horn i built for him sitting on my living room table and oh my god it's a hose very little resistance so people don't they they don't want to believe that they just want it to blow open but that's a balancing act so it's all a matter of balancing but you got to get someone to to commit to something if i can make you understand that the last four inches of the bell is what's defining the envelope of sound and everything back from there is about feel then we can work. If I can't get somebody to do that, I may not be able to help them. But then again, they may have an instrument that's already there and we can modify that. So we work backwards. But I like to work from sound back to feel. I think you said something earlier. 50% of trumpet playing is 92% mental. Did I have that right? Oh, God, not Yogi Berra. Okay, you've heard that before. (laughs) Yeah, if you believe something is true, then absolutely. It's going to be true until you get tired. Then the truth will reveal itself. All right, so fatigue plays a role in finding the right equipment? I think that if you look at the arc of your day or the arc of your week or the arc of your month even, I know when it's a full moon, I'm not going to sleep, and I'm going to have crazy good energy for all sorts of things musical and trumpet playing. And as that goes away, God, this is going to sound really woo-woo. Anyhow, but throughout your own day. Now, if I start in the morning, big band, lead, split a lead book all weekend. I had little to no business being there, but I had a guy that could play double A's and that's all I really needed. You may be able to play something that's way too open when you first start, but within the first two hours of playing, you're going to need that reflection of the standing wave in order for you to be able to play the trumpet. We didn't even get into the physics of the trumpet. Good Lord, help us. Yeah, no, it's scary. But people, everybody thinks they think they know how the instrument works, including myself. But you got to go with something. Yeah, I think fatigue makes a difference if you're looking at how long you're going to play. One of my former students who's now a band director, he studied with me at camp 20 years ago. Lord, I've been here a while. And he said to me, I'm not particularly efficient, and I don't play that much every day, but it needs to be pretty open. And he was absolutely right. We designed a horn for him that worked real well. I think what I was getting at when I brought that last topic up is your state of mind is probably going to play a role in how a play test is going to go. If you're having a bad day versus if you just won an audition, you're going to be in a completely different mindset. And so how do you prepare yourself mentally, not just to play, but so that you can have the best possible representation of your playing. So you're describing my most desirable client and my least desirable client. Okay. So I want, okay. I think that you, me, everyone as an individual has to come up with as much consistency as humanly possible. And if they can remove, if I can remove my ego from it and accept, and this is what Malcolm would tell me time and time again, if we were working on something, I was getting frustrated, I couldn't do something. 
he would simply turn to me and say, yeah, you're not quite warmed up enough to do this yet. So it's it's always a progression. We're always going somewhere. Don't have an answer to your question. I, it's so individual and it's, it's so much wrapped up in your head. I'll ask you the question. Do you index? I know I'm not supposed to do that. I read the rules. Do you index your mouthpiece when you put it in or do you just slap it in? On the Reese piece, here's a nice tarnished one on my computer table. We got a little star on it. And so that's, you can line it up as you put it into the lead pipe to the optimal place where it sounds the best and feels the best to you. That's free consistency. When I was working as a trumpet player day in and day out in Los Angeles, I swabbed my lead pipe and all my horns at the end of the day because I wanted it to feel the same tomorrow. That's free consistency. Don't go try trumpets and expect to find something when you're all beat up. There's the answer. Like at these shows that we go to, it's probably the worst place, but it's it's a necessary evil. You go around and you play every trumpet at every table and you are stretched six ways from Sunday with your face. You're not going to really find the instrument except for it'll be the one that, you know, your hero plays. And then you expect to sound like that person. What's your opinion of a certain person with some notoriety design an instrument and then people go buy that and then they expect they're going to sound like that. That's the game and that's the game that's been going on there throughout throughout instrument manufacturers' lives. And I'll say this, if you find an instrument by a Bach or a Yamaha or a Getson or a whatever and you like the sound and you can play it and you're satisfied, stop there, just go practice. Bottom line, that's where it's at but we are all so different i'm i'm let's see i'm probably 220 right now a little little heavier than i'm supposed to be i'm a big guy i throw a lot of air through the instrument i have really weird lips <laughs> and so i can play a fairly small mouthpiece which my teachers all go oh no you should play a 1c you're a big guy find something that fits but isn't your body going to just adjust to whatever you're playing you will adjust to it and that's where i always offer trials even on sale instruments um and the thing is if it gets through i think like about three days there's gonna be you're gonna play it you're gonna love it if it lasts three days then it's probably a good fit for you because that's usually about the time that it takes I tell people, keep it for two weeks, work through that. If you get it home and with a day, you can't make a sound. But there's all sorts of adjustments on my instruments, movable braces and all sorts of things that, and it really helps if you're sitting in the same room with me to set that up. Roy Popper was just up here. I built him a new B-flat trumpet and loved it, was really happy with it, except for the third valve slide got damaged on going back to Ohio. And so he took it to a tech and the tech fixed that, but took the trumpet apart and didn't mark where the braces were. And he went like bonkers for about two weeks. This is James Newcomb on the Trumpet Dynamics podcast. And we have the great Ken Larson on the call with us. And we've gone all 
manner of directions with our conversation thus far, but my hope is that we can simplify things just a little bit because you teach young people and young people, they, as you've already explained with your own personal history, we're very good at overcomplicating things. Mm-hmm. So what is your philosophy with teaching young people who just want to do everything today? How do you simplify it? For your students, I think is what I'm trying to get. Oh, how many hours do we got left? Okay. In the very first lesson that they have, I ask a variety of questions. And one of them is, how patient are you? And then I laugh hysterically. At that point, I tell them, it's, this is a lifelong journey. I've been playing the trumpet for over five decades, and I'm still a student of the trumpet. I'm still learning That was one of the main reasons I chose this over going to work in a machine shop or something that I would have made a lot more money at. So it's, there's that part of it, letting them know that it's a lifelong commitment and it may not be for you. And I also tell them this, oh, when I was 16, I had been the top of the heap. I'd been First trumpet of the Optimus Band. I was first trumpet of my high school orchestra, band, all that stuff. And I went to Mr. Merle Cody School of Music in San Diego on 7th Street. That one's long gone. But I said, Mr. Cody, should I be a professional trumpet player? And he said to me, absolutely not unless you have to. And put the trumpet away. I go, oh, I suck. I've been fooling myself. I'll figure out something else. And I tell the kids this story, and within a day, I was a little antsy, a little fidgety. Two days, I was very irritable. (laughs) By the third day, I had to do it. I had to play the instrument. This isn't for the faint of heart. Again, not answering your question, but that's, it's your, you were establishing a relationship with the kid that lets them that you're being honest with them that this is i'm still learning and i'm still loving it because i'm learning you're not going to change how they are they're going to do whatever they're going to do i feel like i run buffet for my students i trot out the stamp way of playing I trot out Schlossberg. We do Adam. We do Caruso. I do, oh, what, Maggio. Anything that I can think of that might work for them. And then at the end of the first week, because we have group lessons for the first week, I said, I want you to choose one of these things, and this is how we're going to work towards the end goal. The kids at Interlochen, the really cool part of it is once they get into it and they see all their friends practicing, they get better a lot fast. But as far as changing their minds, no, I accepted when I first got there, all I could do would be to present the materials. I don't even try and change their mind because they're kids. And kids are stubborn and they know everything. They know everything, and I remember it all too well, so I can't really be upset about it. I had the same thought. In fact, I'll sit there and tell them. I said, I know what you're thinking right now. Oh, no, really? I say, yeah, you think I'm full of crap. You think that you're going to figure out a better and easier way to do this. And I'm here to tell you what George Cable told me in my very first lesson, that I had to hear it, is all you need to know. 
And I will point to my board that says 92% of it is hearing it, mm-hmm. 6% blow for it, 2% lip tongue jaw position. Can you give me that name again who said, should I be a pro trumpet player? Who did you ask that again? Mr. Merle Cody. He was the director of the Optimus Youth Band. He had he, he was a band director at Horace Mann Junior High. He had a school of music in San Diego. And in those days, it was wild. There were, were four music, five music companies like on every corner. There was Ozzy's. They had their own band. There was Cody School of Music. There was the Thurl Piano. There was a guitar place downstairs. There was a couple other music stores all within two blocks of each other. It was wild. It's not like it is now. It has definitely lost that community element with everything yeah. being online. There's, It has its conveniences, its advantages, but it, you absolutely, we have definitely lost that personal touch that we once had. And I'm younger than you. I'm a generation behind you. But I remember the day I was just talking with my wife about the band room was just where I wanted to be when I was in high school. I didn't want to be anywhere else. I just, and I didn't even play. I'd be tired of playing for the day, but I just wanted to be around my friends. That's where my friends were. Absolutely. We ate lunch there. Yeah. We hung out. That's where we hung out, all the band geeks. It's interesting how we were the runt of the litter in high school, but if you stick with it long enough and you play it like professionally, you're like the creme de la creme of society. Isn't that interesting? It's wild. Everybody it's thinks, oh, he plays for the symphony. Wow. Oh, yeah. I had to put on my ring-tailed monkey suit and go to work. That's your musical real job. <laughs> Absolutely. But yes, I, I, I was asking about that Merle Cody because that's such a makes you think. And that's like wisdom being imparted to the young person. Should I be a professional trumpet player? Not unless you have to. And when you first said that, I was like, what does that even mean? unless I have to make money. But then you think about it, and the more you were explaining it, I was like, I get it. I have to do this. I can't not do this. Exactly. And that's the, I think the real passion and where I'm, I'm truly blessed and fortunate and everything else with this job. I look at what led me here and it's the, it's serendipity. <laughs> it's really wild. I get some of the best students in the country, and I would say 95% of them are dead set serious about this. Some of them are trying it out. I get one every few years that ah, I'm here because my mom wanted me to be here, and then they get excited about it, and they're they're not going to be professional players, but they're going to come to our concerts. They'll be patrons. Yeah, Exactly. And they're going to have a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, they'll be lawyers and they can pay your salaries. Exactly. <laughs> it's not like they're without a purpose. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, it make, makes us laugh, but it's true. There's uh, my, my colleagues, they actually, when they're speaking with the administration, that's one of their angles that they use to get funding for us in the brass department. It cracks me up. I'm saying, you told them that? They go, look at this guy. His name is on my door. The president of an energy company. He got more money than God. Ken Larson has been with us. And sadly, we have to part ways for now. I want to invite you back onto the show sometime. What you were talking about with the energy translating into meshing with the metallurgy, that's something that I have probably I've thought about it and I just wondered about curious about that 
But then you brought that up, and that's definitely something I'd like to examine further. We just talked about your story and your personal history on Trumpet and this yeah. one, but if you're up for it, I'd love to dive deep into that. We'll find some time. It's been a pleasure. Yes, sir. This is James Newcomb on the Trumpet Dynamics podcast, and we've been with Ken Larson of Ken Larson's Brassworks. Where are my manners? What is your website? www.brassworks with an E dot com with an E. Yes. Why please. is it with an Because that's what was available. <laughs> <laughs> when I went, I was, this was the, I wanted to have Brassworks and then my friend Craig Hara, who also worked at Malone's, we had this, I had this dream that we would have, he, he actually has his own shop. He's a genius, but he has his own shop and does all sorts of stuff, drums, computers. He's a hell of a trumpet player. Now he's conducting. I thought we could have, everybody could have their own Brassworks. So anyhow, that's what I could get domain wise. And I wanted a dot com. All right. That's been great, Ken. Thank you for being on the show, man. My pleasure. That's a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. If you or someone you know has a dynamic story you think should be shared on this show, please email us at podcast at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com and to subscribe to James Newcomb's email newsletter, visit trumpetdynamics.com or jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. Thank you for listening and we'll be in your earball soon.